I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week, we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And in season two, we told you all the secrets about Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars. For season three, we're introducing you to the women that Bill got burned by and ultimately changed the alcohol industry. Make sure you add us on social media at a tap on the wrist. We are so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hi, everyone. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Laura. And this is a Tap on the Wrist podcast. So today we are going to welcome a very special guest, Natalie from Shared History Podcast. Welcome, Natalie. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Um, So before we kind of jump in, why don't you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your podcast and your background? For sure. Uh, Hello. I was already love wonderfully introduced. My name is Natalie. I am one half of the hosting power behind Shared History, a podcast that focuses on the often overlooked or underrepresented stories from history. So um, basically just not old white men mm-hmm. is, is probably the easiest way to sum that up. Yeah. Uh, sometimes like old white men make a cameo appearance, but that's not, they're they not, have to. it's they're not a part of everybody's story. Right. <laughs> but as Cass and I, <laughs> as Cass and I always say in the podcast, it's not about them because enough things are. So that's uh, what shared history is all about. My background, um, I am not a historian. I was a history major for one year of college. And then I missed getting to make things up in papers. So I switched. Um, my background is actually as an actor and comedian and writer. So that is what I, that is what people pay me to do. Um, and I am from the Chicagoland area, have lived in Chicago for 12, 10, I don't remember how many years and how. Uh, so I loved y'all's last season. <laughs> yep. You've All talked, of that Chicago. I constantly would see uh, the posts on, on social media and be like, well, I, uh, I have to catch up because I got to, we got to talk about, we got to talk about my boy Capone. We got to uh-huh. talk about my levy district. So I'm <laughs> Cass is not from Chicago originally and constantly uh, is bullying me on our podcast for making everything about Chicago history. So Spoiler I, alert, I'm bringing Chicago-ish history today. Amazing, amazing. I loved doing that season so much. And I, we have several friends that live in Chicago now. And we were like, why did this have to be during a pandemic? Like, we want to go to Chicago. We want to go to all these places that we're talking about. So we're like dying to now. Laura's vaccinated. I'm half vaccinated. And we're like, we're just waiting to be able to go and see all the sites. Well, hit me up when you get over here. Definitely, definitely. So what is generally your guys' research project? Like, how do you choose the episodes that you're going to focus on, especially because they are, you know, lesser known stories? Yeah, we occasionally will set a very loose prompt. And when I say a very loose prompt, I mean, literally, we'll say America 
is the, <laughs> is the theme uh, or, or we'll be like science. Um, and that's, that's as hard into that as we go. We kind of, we are very choose your own adventure of, we, we both have a really long list of things that we've stumbled upon on other episodes that we want to dig into further. And so that's kind of how we wind up telling the stories we do. If you ever tune into an episode and we're doing two stories on that episode, they often have nothing to do with each other. Um, Like there'll be completely, we'll be in ancient Vietnam and then we'll be in modern day in the same episode. Um, And then our research process is the glory and magic of the internet and the power invested in us by our education <laughs> of being good at good at good at Google. Yeah, same. We too are not historians. Uh, so, although Laura is a history teacher, so she's you know credentials. But I'm not a got a little bit of majors. credentials. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were just but, like, "Hey, you can we- teach. You want to teach history?" And I was like, "Yeah." You were like more so than math, yeah. <laughs> Do not blame you. <laughs> oh man. Um, and then if our listeners kind of want to just jump in and listen to your podcast, what is the episode that you recommend to people to start with? Honestly, the first one. Uh, <laughs> we, I really love yeah. our first episode. I think it, despite the fact that my co-host and I always talk about how we hate U.S. history and it is a U.S. history episode, I think it uh, really captures the who we are and also what we're uh, attracted to in history and the chaos train that can be our conversations. If I'm going to go a little bit deeper... See, we also have guests on a lot, uh, so I don't want to choose a guest episode so that nobody thinks I'm playing favorites. So (laughs) another one that I'm a big fan of, if you hate U.S. history, but you enjoy either world war, um, we have an episode, it's episode 13, I think, called War But Make It Fashion, and it's uh, got a little bit of World War I. We talk about a master sculptress who actually developed like basically early prosthetic uh, facial prosthetics in World War One, Anna Coleman Ladd. And then we jump to World War II and we talk about the all-female Soviet uh, fighter pilot regiment called the Night Witches, who were just terrorizing Nazis. So it's a that good That sounds one. fast. <laughs> I got to go back and listen to that one. That sounds really good. Okay. And because this is an alcohol-themed podcast, we of course have to ask, what is your go-to cocktail or drink? I'm a simple soul. Give me a give me a gin and tonic, and I'm a happy camper. Nice, <laughs> classy. It is. It is a classic, classy one. Okay, and lastly, which this is like always the hardest question for me. I, my answer changes constantly. But if you could invite any woman, dead or alive, out for drinks, who would it be, and why? I don't think this is my end all, be all answer, but this is. Because you know me, I always have Chicago history on the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I want to say Sally Rand, like famous burlesque dancer, Sally Rand. She just seems like a firecracker. Mm-hmm. She's not from Chicago. She just performed at the, the 1933 World's Fair. We recently did an episode on her. And I'm just like, she probably, a good night. It would just be like a really fun night. 
Definitely. Which we could all use uh, right now. <laughs> uh, can't, can't we? <laughs> <laughs> Laura, have your answers changed? My answers like changed that hourly. I know, mine do too. All the time. There's just so many, there's just so many fascinating women. Okay. Well, now that we've gotten to know Natalie a little bit, I think it's time to uh, jump into our stories. And I think it's it's like slight it's like slightly themed, right? Like it's a prohibition, Laura, your episode, your story, right? Am I making slightly. that up? <laughs> yeah, I mean we, we always 19, try to forty. I always try to force a theme somehow. I'm like, this one tiny link. I love a, I love a stretch. I love a, I love a forced segue. It's honestly, it's an art form. Um, Yeah. I would say I would, if, if you're, if you're in, if you're in prohibition era, I'm pre-prohibition era, but like I got connections. So shall I, shall I take us back to an area we're very, very familiar with? And so you're listeners at this point. Yes. Great. Um, I'm going to take us basically back to your last season. Uh, In episode 42, you guys name drop my topic for today. And that's my main girl, Frances Willard. And I feel like the best way to start is, is I feel like the best way to start is how I first learned about Frances Willard. So as you mentioned in your episode on Temperance uh, Evanston, which I'm sure you were corrected already, is not a neighborhood in Chicago. It is its own city. Uh, I was listening to the episode and I was like, not a neighborhood. We definitely have not been corrected not on that. Well, now we know. Now you know. Well, isn't that where Northwestern is? Yes. So we have a friend that lives in Evanston and I just assumed it was a neighborhood of like... And that's where our friend lives. <laughs> having grown up in like the Southwest suburbs and having been like chastised if I ever said I was from Chicago, uh, Evanston is much closer to Chicago than than where I grew up. But also and also I was in the same county. So it's a little bit more of a gray area. I forgive your friend for thinking that she lives in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, it's it's its own city. Um just north of Chicago, like you said, where Northwestern uh, is, is built up around Northwestern University, great school, solid arts programs, some great notable alumni. I think Stephen Colbert went there. Um, I know David Schwimmer did. I uh, I wish I had applied, but they would have made me take the SAT and I refused to. <laughs> but it's not about that. <laughs> um, so from its founding, uh, Evanston was a dry city. Uh, long before Prohibition, you talk about all of this, but uh, I want to mention that Evanston was dry until 1972. Oh, damn. So, I did not realize that. Mm-hmm. And Why even does anyone that, live there? <laughs> just great schools, a wonderful <laughs> shopping district. It's a place that you can, it's still on the Chicago uh transit lines but it's even though it's so it's an easier commute but you're other than that your guess is as good as mine um in fact when when Evanston became not dry uh the city council voted 11 to 6 in favor of allowing businesses to apply for liquor licenses and the mayor at the time refused to sign in the new ordinance for a bit so fun facts 
Oh. <laughs> cut to cut to modern day Evanston. The city of Evanston is still more restrictive around alcohol than Chicago or the surrounding suburbs. And uh, the, so Northwestern University is a huge, huge like sports school, like basketball bananas. I don't know. I don't watch sports. Um, but the, uh, I think that just last year they changed the rules on campus so that they would allow sell alcohol sales at in their arena. Like I think that happened just last year. I saw a news article. Damn. That's it's, pretty common because I, I went to a really big school. I went to the University of Florida, which is a big sports school as well. And you couldn't buy alcohol on campus when I went there. So that's why tailgating was such a big deal because we would all tailgate because once you got inside the arena, it was like, okay, now we sober up and watch watch the sports. <laughs> now, but, uh, now we just ride out this buzz that we that we have going. Yeah, oh I, it's it's weird to me though because I don't know, all I think about when I think of college is drinking <laughs> and learning. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Vanessa, I guess. Vanessa got that special degree. <laughs> <laughs> She learned from the three wise men, like Tito, (laughs) Johnny, Jack. Yep. They're all great teachers. We've all learned more, uh, so many life lessons from those, from those fine educators. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. uh, No, no, no. The reason I bring that up is that, so in, in 2000, I think in 2011, I'm going to, if I didn't, I didn't look up this of all things, uh, in the 2000s, we'll just do a blanket statement. The first uh, drop of alcohol was distilled in Evanston, I think ever, definitely since the repeal of uh, of prohibition across the country. And that was at a place that was called Few Distillery. Uh, so if you've ever had Few Spirits, their bottles kind of look like their their design looks like a like a playing card. Few is F E W all caps. It stands for Francis Elizabeth Willard. Nice. So, oh. so they named it for a leader of the temperance movement. That's amazing. In fact, amazing. The first, right? Uh, just kind of like, just mm, delightfully little, little, little stab at her, if you she will. Just rolled over a little in her grave. Yeah. <laughs> it was a large sigh and a and a rolling. <laughs> Um, the first brewery, actually, for what it's worth, in Evanston that was ever op- opened in Evanston is literally called Temperance Beer Company. So I love, I love that. I love that. They, yeah, they know their history. Um, but we're it's not about these delicious spirits and beers, although like they, I, I'm a fan. You mention it in your episode about the temperance movement in 1847 there are 10 different temperance societies working around chicago our pal uh francis willard frank to her friends participated in the founding of one that is still around today the women's christian temperance union wctu for the rest of this i'm gonna do the exact same that you guys did i'm not saying that every single time no no (laughs) 
She rose, she rose to, she was there for the founding of it, which I think is really cool. It was founded in Ohio. And then she like rose through the ranks uh, until she was the heckin' national president of it, a role that she held until she died. Uh, but it, she, it. Yeah, she was like, I, rules. <laughs> yes. She's like, this is, I'm holding on to this title with an iron fist and no one else can have it until I am gone. I am Francis and I have things to do. <laughs> but before that, a little bit more background on her since she was kind of like a name drop in that, in that episode, in that past episode, she's born in New York, 1839. She's born near Rochester. Um, her dad, Josiah was a farmer, a naturalist and a legislator. Her mom, Mary was a school teacher and when she's really young, they move to Ohio, where Josiah studies for the ministry at Oberlin College. And then they bounce over to Wisconsin, Janesville, Wisconsin. Um, that's where they like convert to Methodism, which is kind of only important in the context of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the fact that Evanston is heavily Methodist and Northwestern is a Methodist college or university. Um but also I think important because like if you know about Methodism, like Methodists got their name from the methodical way in which they carry out their Christian faith, which I think really describes Francis. We should just call her Frank. Uh, <laughs> we're on a first we're on a friendly basis with her. Um, because everything that everything that our pal Frankie does is super methodical. And I just really think that all of this, like her dad being a farmer, a legislator, and a minister, her mom being a teacher, really sets the stage for Frank being be growing up to be this like kind of radical for the time period, um, well, <laughs> radical, but with kind of like Victorian ideals, uh, activist. <laughs> She's she lobbies, she's a reformer, and all of this, obviously, with a religious bent. So finally, when she's about 18, they move to Evanston, where somehow now Josiah is a banker. I don't... Josiah's just getting around getting around the jobs. Yeah, how many has he had so far? He started as... He was a farmer, farmer and a legislator. Right? Okay. He was a, then he trains in the ministry. I couldn't find if he ever actually was a minister but now he's a banker. Seems like a natural jump, ministry banking. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, so so one thing that <laughs> that Francis firmly kind of believed was that there kind of there can be no separation from religion and politics, which if you look at her father's journey from legislator to minister to banker makes sense. I don't know. All of I got way too excitable while doing my research and went in 30 different directions, which is classic me. But she, so she's in Evanston. She attends Northwestern Female College, no affiliation with the university. And this is where our story kind of really begins. Because the, I think the best way to describe Frank is as a force. She graduates and immediately starts like teaching and touring. She teaches all over the country. She goes on like a world tour with her friend. By the age of 32, she's like, okay, Evanston is home. I'm going to go back to Evanston. I'm going to keep teaching. She becomes, she's appointed as the president of Evanston College for Ladies. 
which then becomes the woman's college at Northwestern University. At, so at that point, then she's named the f- first dean of women at Northwestern University. At some point during this, she gets engaged to, I didn't even write his name down because who cares? I think his last name is Fowler. Uh, she, she gets engaged to this other academic who is the president. He becomes university president at Northwestern University. They're constantly butting heads when she's the dean of women. She resigns from this job and from her fiance. I think <laughs> and from her fiance. She's like, I resigned from this job. I resigned from this relationship. I th- Francis never marries. And she's like, I think she's engaged twice, but she never marries, which is interesting since she very much believed in like the like the family unit and like i mentioned kind of like more victorian ideals once she resigns from the university this is where she digs into activism she's a founding member of the wctu she's elected as a first secretary of the organization then she heads up the publications department uh which as a side quest from that she ends up uh teaming up with a bunch of other women in the area in um, in publication, and they form the Illinois Women's Press Association. Just a casual side quest that she's doing during all this. She, she be- reminds me of, like, myself, like, too many side hustles. Like, she, <laughs> like she's like, you know what? I have a free hour this week. Let me start a magazine. Yeah. Like, I, I just don't understand. Like, no, no. So I relate to Frankie. A big a- relate. A yeah. huge relate to Frankie. Uh, she she then becomes like, she's just climbing through the ranks at the WCTU. She becomes president of the Chicago chapter, which while she's president of the Chicago chapter, she leaves the national chapter because the president of the national chapter at the time would not link the issues of like prohibition and temperance to women's suffrage. And that was a huge deal to her. Um, she basically believed that she her I, I'll get into it more later, but it was it was the idea that if women, first of all, the idea going back even to your guys's episode, the idea that like maybe temperance would catch on and we could have a prohibition if you would let women vote because the men kept voting <laughs> against it. Um, but this is neither here nor there because then she becomes president of the Illinois chapter and then she becomes president. At 40 years old, she becomes president of the national WCTU and holds on to that until she dies. If you're like, Natalie, this is an alcohol podcast. You're supposed to be talking about a woman in alcohol. I know. This is a woman in alcohol. We get it. But what's funny about it is as I dug into the research, it was like, Aside from literally being the president of a major temperance uniform and that, you know, coming with an amount of boozy baggage, if you will, none of the bios I read about Francis spend much time talking about her relationships or feelings about alcohol at all. Like personally. Yeah. Um, Outside of connecting it to the pursuit of women's suffrage. The the WCTW, of course, its stated purpose was to create a sober and pure world. Their wor- words, not mine. Um, 
no longer get the connection with Frankie, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but on this, we disagree. Uh, but the WCTU didn't perceive alcohol as personal weakness or as a personal failing. They saw it as a cause and consequence to larger social problems. So unsurprisingly, as and specifically under Frankie's leadership, they end up campaigning for against a number of social issues. So most of what I found about Frances is talks more about her pursuit of like her dire pursuit of, of women's suffrage, which also just like prohibition, she does not achieve in her lifetime. Um, reform in labor, prostitution, public health, sanitation, international peace. Like we're covering the whole, well, a whole spectrum of social issues. And uh, Laura, to your, to your hard relate to just doing too much. <laughs> Francis literally developed the slogan, a slogan for WCTU, and that slogan was "Do everything." <laughs> Can I get that picture of my jacket? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just, look, we came here. I know we formed under like this one goal, but what if we, a large organization of women who want to get shit done? Just like expand what what shit is in that situation and yeah. go for it. And just do everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that more accurately describes her priorities as she was president of the organization for the next 20 years until uh, 20 years or so until she passed away. You she, often, I often wonder if like, had they been single focused, would they have achieved their mission quicker? A, oh, a good question. M- maybe she did. It's funny is that they didn't achieve pro. They didn't achieve complete temperance. So they like gained attraction in some regards and women didn't get the right to vote until after, after Francis passed. But she did achieve like achieve a bunch of other things that she was doing. So I guess it was like we cast a wide net and then we can take whatever wins we whatever wins we happen to be successful in. Or maybe they she just knew that the alcohol thing was an uphill battle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just was like, well, if we just go after this one thing, we're gonna keep losing. <laughs> so I mean, I think about that sometimes now. Like the idea of temperance in the early 1900 like i don't know how anyone ever thought that was going to pass like it it blows my mind now that it did pass and that it was a law in this country for 11 years because if they tried to do that now i just it wouldn't happen no yeah and then that, that and then it, it lasted for 11 years but then like you have also then have the realization as you get older and study more history that it's like, yeah, it was the law, but most of the country wasn't abiding by it. No. So <laughs> it was a shadow of a law. Yeah. Uh, her angle, her angle for, I will say so, because I feel like I need to talk about alcohol. Uh, <laughs> her angle for women's suffrage tied back to alcohol because uh, she she and the WCTU fought for f- female suffrage on grounds of, quote, 
home protection, which she described as the object of which is to secure for all women, this is a quote, which is why it's in stilted language, the object of which is to secure for all women above the age of 21 years, the ballot as one means for the protection of their homes against the devastation caused by strong drink. So it was, we want the vote so that we have more of a say in our day-to-day lives because men are drunk all the time and abu- and like abusive and making dumb decisions because they're drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason for that angle, though, could have been strategic because the press, obviously, very patriarchal, and had they been undermining every other women's suffrage organization by urging women to be suspicious of other women... So by making by the WCTU's angle of home protection appealed to a larger group of average women despite that, because then it wasn't like girl power. We deserve the right to vote. It was more of like we deserve the right to vote because Bill's drunk again. Yeah. So it was less about them being like like empowered women and more about that guy shouldn't shouldn't be deciding everything for us um but yeah she just was a busy lady she went on lengthy speak speaking tours she averaged about like 400 lectures a year for the a 10-year period of her presidency until she got like a little like until she was like older and i say older like 50 uh and and wasn't of great health at that point. Mm-hmm. She made really important like friends and connections who often didn't agree with the temperance cause, but like couldn't deny that Frank was a badass. Um, she also made enemies a important uh, uh, clash that she had was with none other than Ida B. Wells. Okay. So, the women's Christian temperance union, predominantly white, if not all white. And they're, they often depicted one of the evils of alcohol. Part of their way of like trying to convince people like temperance was good was by throwing the black community under the bus and saying that one of the evils of alcohol was that it incited black criminality. And uh, Wells also uh, like called out, uh, Frankie for being consistently silent on the topic of lynching, uh, for pandering to the racist myth that white women were in constant danger from drunk males and like using that to leverage the agenda of the temperance unit uh, movement. Yeah. So, well, Frankie, not all good. Frankie, yeah. a complex <laughs> figure uh, yeah. in history. She just happened to achieve a decent amount of pretty impressive things for a woman. Uh, a single woman at that time that that be like she like helped pass labor reform laws including the eight-hour workday she helped raise the age of consent in many states the women's christian temperance union under her leadership believed in i forget the way that they phrased it but basically like a women a woman's right to not be pregnant Basically, uh, like pregnancy by choice in the context of the time, they basically meant a woman's right to not have sex with her husband. It was not about abortion at that point in time. 
Um, it was just about, you know, having the right to say no say and no. <laughs> her own body in that regard. Yeah. Um, she was like part of the first international proclamation against drug trade. She helped lay the foundation for what became the, uh, and, oh, and then she also became the first president of the national council of women in the United States. She helped form the populist party. Uh, she kept trying to, uh, blend politics and religion, but because she was a woman, the men kept kind of cutting out the temperance part of the agenda anytime it came in, or the women's suffrage part of the agenda anytime, uh, anytime it came in. Uh, and then my favorite, my favorite anecdote, and also, and by anecdote, I mean she wrote a whole book about it. Is she learned? She famously learned to ride a bike at the age of fifty-three. I want to say she had never ridden a bike before. She didn't have time before she was working on so many things. Didn't have time. I literally just looked her up for a picture and a picture of her on a bike came up and I was going to be like, wow, she has a lot of bike pictures. Like that's what like all these pictures are like her on this. Oh my God. Bike. She was a, she was a champion for like, for bicycling being a, safe efficient and like ladylike way to get exercise and also get around she literally wrote a book it was called the wheel of fortune i think it's called wheel of fortune will uh francis willard discovers the bicycle is i think the name or maybe it's a book basically uh oh no here it is here it is her enthusiastic book about the experience a wheel within a wheel how i learned to ride the bicycle um and she basically is like, every woman needs to master the bicycle. It's about how when she was little, she was like an outdoorsy girl and she was like, didn't have time. She was not an indoor kid at all. She like would carry around like a toolkit and a gardening kit because she grew up in a more rural area. But then once she turned 16 and she had to wear like the, the skirts of the time she hated them and they hampered her and she hated walking places because she was always tripping on her skirts and all of that jazz but then so then that's why she like pursued the more academic route that she did there are some beautiful quotes in in this uh i'm trying to find oh here it goes um when the hampering long skirts were brought with their accompanying corset and high heels, my hair was clubbed up with pins. And I remember writing in my journal in the, in the first heartbreak of a young human colt taken from its pleasant pasture. Altogether, I recognize that my occupation is gone. Like I cannot be this outdoorsy go get em girl with these skirts. Oh no. And so when she she gets uh, she kind of gets sick after the death of her mother when she gets when she's older, and doctors like recommend that she spends more time outdoors and and whatnot. And that's when she's like, "We're doing it. I'm gonna learn to ride the bicycle." And she says, "If I'm asked to explain why I learned the bicycle, I should say I did it as an act of grace, if not of actual religion." And I just like. Okay. I just love how passionate she is about like the exercise part of bike biking, but also just that she didn't learn to do it until she was 53 and that and she I managed know. to write a whole book about it. Well, oh, Francis be writing. Francis wrote a lot, <laughs> but 
I almost like felt bad because I was like researching her and I was like, not any, she, they, I, what she's known for is the temperance union, you like union, but like. She did so much more. She did so much more. And that almost feels like a means, like more of like a means to an end, end yeah. for her. Um, oh, don't worry. We've, we've told many stories where like, and they drank a glass of wine. And then, <laughs> and then that's, that's our alcohol. It's like, we like. <laughs> I just want to tell the history sometimes. I think I um, wanted her to be like a little bit more of a villain. Uh, just, just because I know that like, f- because few was named for her as kind of like a, haha, take this Francis, you, you roll in your grave at this, that I wanted, I wanted there to be a, I wanted it to be saucier. I wanted it to be more connected to the sauce. But <laughs> she was like a pretty upstanding person who just had different morals. <laughs> yep. She and just was like, I'm cool things. She was like, I got shit to do and I can't get it done if I'm, if everyone around me is in drunken debaucherous delight all the time. Can we curb it? Can we reel it in a little bit? <laughs> um. So I'm seeing that in Evanston, a city near Chicago. Um, <laughs> Uh, that there's actually like the Francis Willard house. Have you ever been there? I have not, but I was going to, I was going to offer to go and take a picture in front of it for you guys. If you would like, Uh, I have been to Rose Hill cemetery where she is buried. Um, But I don't know. I haven't, I don't, I, a lot of famous Chicago figures are in that cemetery specifically. Vanessa and I love cemeteries. Yes. (laughs) A Chicago cemetery walk is is a whole vibe and then it, if you know more about chicago like the more you learn about chicago history the they more have her bike there? of course they do they were <laughs> they were one of my um their website's one of my sources today their her bike was called gladys because it made her glad oh my god name your bike ladies get out there and bike and name your bike yeah i gotta bike more uh i i just <laughs> I saw it as like a small, what's funny is that I agree, like every photo of her, it's like either this picture of her with the tiny little glasses and she just looks like she has no time for your shit today. (laughs) And then every other photo of her is her with a bike. Yeah. But the first time that I saw the bike thing, it was just like a footnote. It was just like, and she famously learned to ride the bike at 52 or 53. And I was like, that seems like a weird thing to mention in the middle of this bio. Yeah. And then it cracked (laughs) wide open. (laughs) oh man please please do if you have time take a picture in front of the house and now we're gonna have to add that to our list laura when we i know (laughs) chicago vacation has gone from like two days to like two months (laughs) it's also like chicago's pretty spread out too like it's i always say chicago's a, a a small big city and the fact that like everyone you run into people you know everywhere but also like the city is People who don't live in Chicago often come to Chicago and go, damn, this city is just larger in scale than I thought because it's the downtown district is such a small part of it. Well, I was going to say a lot of people probably assume that like the loop is Chicago, Mm -hmm. but it's not because I've been to Chicago now, I think three or four times and I've seen barely any of it. Like there was one time I went and I stayed only in the loop because I was going to Lollapalooza as a person who comes to Chicago like you does. <laughs> um, 
And then there was another time where I was like way up north. My friend lives in like, is it Edison Park? Sure. I don't know if you're familiar. That's, I, I mean, think that's, that that's is a neighborhood. A neighborhood. Yeah. Um, yeah. You wouldn't know where my friend lives, but so I was in that part <laughs> of Chicago. Um, but yeah, it is a pretty like spread out city. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've been twice and I feel like I've seen like nothing. <laughs> Literally where I live in the city too. Uh, I'm in the old Irving Park slash Albany Park. My neighborhood is called North Mayfair, but nobody's ever, nobody in, like very few people in Chicago know what that neighborhood is. Um, but in being part of the Chicago comedy community, that tends to hug the east side of the city, like the lake near the lake a lot of folks like to live in the popular neighborhoods like lakeview and then they've like migrated west to as far west as like logan square but i have friends who when i moved to this neighborhood were like what is that what are you in wisconsin now because i'm (laughs) like and i'm not even i'm not even that close to the city limits on like North or West. Like there's still a, de- a decent amount of Chicago ar- around me, like Chicago uh-huh. proper on either side. So it's, it's a, it's a city that it's, I have, like I said, I've been here 12 years and I still will be driving or riding my bike. Thank you, Frankie um, <laughs> someplace and be like, where the hell am I? And is this Chicago still? <laughs> Yeah. Also, Chicago has had some very strange uh, liquor laws that I don't know if they connect to prohibition or not, but like a bunch of them have just recently been overturned. Uh, So like we couldn't, happy hours were banned here until 2015. What else? Oh, literally last year, until last year, you couldn't buy, you couldn't serve or buy alcohol before 11 a.m. on a Sunday. Now it's 9 a.m. They just changed it in February of 2020. Brunch is going to be off the chain when quarantine's over. <laughs> right? Well, here's the thing. I worked at a brunch place. That's why I know that rule. Uh-huh. And I have told many people that that is a rule, including when I worked at a brunch place. And everyone's like, well, nobody follows that, though. And I'm like, well, I was trained that I needed to. Yeah. So, um, like, uh, grain, grain alcohol, I think is illegal in Chicago. Really? You can't get Everclear. You at least can't get 190 proof Everclear in, uh, in Chicago. It's just, uh, those little college kids. Right. (laughs) But that's the thing is like, I didn't know about Everclear. I I mean, I, I didn't, I started school, college outside of Chicago, but, um, I never encountered Edward Forty hands until I was visiting a friend at state school because 40s, I think, were illegal in Chicago for or banned in Chicago for uh, a bit. Those little tiny, like, airplane-sized bottles of liquor were banned in Chicago. So random. It was, like, weird rules against um, sizes. The The little tiny thing was because they were, like, people are littering. Mm. And I'm like, no, it's because you're racist and you're, uh, you're just being, you're just trying to do things that will affect people who are living with houselessness. So like, because you don't want, you don't want them to be able to get alcohol. That's what this is about. Um, yeah. Chicago is still a very segregated, uh, and problematic city. This is why I loved your episode on the on 
the first ward because it is still the most corrupt ward in Is it really? Yeah, yeah. It has a long history of corruption. Um, what's his butt? The last alderman, one of the most recent aldermans of the first ward, was like indicted uh and then still was reelected. It's crazy. I mean, Chicago has such an interesting history as a is. city. I mean, when it comes to corruption and, you know, racism and. I mean, we delved into the politics a little bit. We focused more on the crime, but like the politicians were crazy. I mean, back then, maybe they still are. I mean, apparently some are. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But wild. Like there's a, there's a good wife. It's like all about Chicago politics. Oh, I've never seen mm-hmm. it. Ugh. I mean, there's a reason that like every show that tries to get started in Chicago is like Chicago PD or Chicago Code or uh, Boss, which was about like corrupt politicians or Proven Innocent, which was about cor- like people being wrongfully co- convicted in Chicago. Like there's there was an article I read in uh in block club, which is a kind of a more hyper local, uh, newspaper news source in, in Chicago where they actually have things for like very specific neighborhoods. That was basically an article that was like, has your alderman been indicted? And then it just is like (laughs) breaks through like the current aldermans and all, and people who are running for alder person and being like, yes, they have been indicted. Here's what for. Oh my God. Or yes, they've served jail time and years and yet they were reelected again. So wild. Oh man. My favorite alderman name is still Hinky Dink nickname. Still my favorite. Always will be. I mean, Uh, you can't beat it. You can't beat it. (laughs) Um, Oh my God. Well, I, I knew nothing about her besides like the brief, thing like mention in season two so that was actually really interesting thank you for sharing and are we where are we jumping to i, for, I already forgot the 30s we we were pre-prohibition and now we're going post-prohibition um well we're not post-prohibition we're oh in we're prohibition. in prohibition okay yes so we are staying in prohibition times or going into prohibition times which we've discussed Probably far too much on our podcast, in all honesty. But I mean, I mean there's just—it's an alcohol podcast. Like, I know. Is such, such a rich period of time for stories. I for stories. I don't want. I didn't want to live it. <laughs> um, but today I'm changing it up just a little bit. So while we are during prohibition time period, I'm going to zone in on a particular neighborhood of New York City. Um, that was kind of having its own period of growth and change during the 1920s, and that is Harlem. So um, I know Vanessa and I are pretty familiar with where Harlem is. Have you been to New York before, Natalie? Yes, I have. Okay. And, like, everyone hears the term Harlem. They kind of get, like, this picture in their head, um, which I'm going to talk about later. But basically, in the 1920s, Harlem becomes this amazing neighborhood of culture and tradition and predominantly black American culture and tradition um, following the great migration as uh, 
past slaves and families of descendants start migrating to the north in hopes of kind of resettling and starting over, getting out of the Jim Crow laws, um, and just a fresh, clean slate. And Harlem is one of the neighborhoods that benefits from that. So with this migration comes the traditions, foods, music, and art of African Americans. And you know, in history, everyone calls it the Harlem Renaissance. That's probably like the one term I learned in eighth grade history that I like didn't really understand. Cause like I grew up in Florida. I had no idea what Harlem was or like why we were studying this neighborhood in New York. And now that I'm a teacher in New York, I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is, should be taught everywhere. But you did uh, the, you did the reverse uh, because Florida was basically settled by New Yorkers or became like a destination for not settled by, but like became a destination for New Yorkers. Once air conditioning was invented, you did the backwards. Yeah. yeah. I no regrets. <laughs> and we'll never go back. <laughs> no. Some of my favorite people escaped from Florida. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It'll be 10 years this June. Yeah. Um, Don't at me. So, Florida. Yeah. <laughs> I talk shit on Florida all the time. (laughs) The Harlem Renaissance is just for those who don't know, by definition, uh, it's an intellectual and cultural revival of African-American music, dance, art, fashion, literature, theater, and politics centered in Harlem, which is located in Manhattan in New York City. Um, And today I'm going to focus on the, the theater and art part of that Renaissance period. Although there's some great poetry, great music, all like it's just a great time. Everything was happening. Yeah. Um, but as I mentioned before, today Harlem does get a pretty bad rap. Like when I first moved to New York, I lived in Harlem. And when I would tell my friends that I was living in Harlem, the shock and horror on their face as someone who's never been to Harlem, it just has um, a bad reputation. Um, And that's because following the Harlem Renaissance, there were many decades of neglect as kind of the hubbub of New York moved downtown and the focus moved downtown and Harlem does become a poorer neighborhood that minorities flock to um, that kind of gets overridden with crime. And it is slowly changing. um, But with that change, we're losing a lot of the history like the places I'm going to talk about today. And I I say that with like a grain of salt because when I was young and naive and brand new in New York, I had no idea where I was living. And when I start doing some of the research, I legitimately lived a block away from where the original Cotton Club was located. And like my block where I my first New York City apartment was is like in the middle of where this amazing renaissance happened. And I'm going to show you guys a map in just a second of what like the nightclub life was like during the renaissance. And that's where I lived. And I had no idea that there was all this history around me because it's just all been covered up and changed and gentrified. And so it's kind of sad at the same time. Yeah. Anyways. Okay, so back into Prohibition, into Harlem, there is, just like in many places around the country, a plethora of underground clubs and bars 
speakeasies. Everything is happening because even though alcohol was illegal, people were drinking it. So I spent almost drinking both- it more. I feel like I feel a hundred. I feel like well, going out now- became more popular. Yeah, before it was like a cultural thing, or it was like like oh, we're social drinkers. We're just having a we're just having a cocktail, and now it's an act of rebellion. Yep. Yeah. I think I said that when we recorded an episode last week. We were all like, fuck, I can't have it. I want it now. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> um, okay. So I sent you guys an email that has far too many attachments. But there's one in particular called Harlem Nightclubs. So if you want to open that one, it looks like a map. And I love a map. We are going to post all of this on Instagram. So feel free to open up our Instagram. We are at a tap on the wrist. Um, and we, you can follow along as well. But um, when you look at this map, you can see they've got some of the bigger avenues listed, like 7th Avenue or Heaven, as it was nicknamed, um, Lenox Avenue, which in modern day New York, Lenox Avenue would be Malcolm X Boulevard. Um, and there are just, it is just ballroom after theater, after nightclub, um, and then in the in the box in the middle, I don't know if you guys can read it, so I'm going to read it. It just says a nightclub map of Harlem. The stars indicate the places that are open all night. Uh, the only important omission is the location of the various speakeasies. But since there are about 500 of them, you won't have much Ooh. trouble finding them. <laughs> like so, these these are just like the ones that were known about and like well traveled. There were, in addition, over 500 speakeasies, like, in this neighborhood of Harlem. Wow. So, like, it's, like, every building almost had yeah. a... Yeah. If you, like, tripped and, like, leaned against, like, a brick, it would, like, open, like, a magic door <laughs> in the back of, like, a building and you'd be in a speakeasy. A hundred percent. There's just... There's some really great illustrations on this map as well and, like, mm-hmm. fun anecdotes, like, the best place to hear a piano and... The best dancing. Um, so I just loved this map. Um, it was drawn in 1932 by E. Sims Campbell, and he is considered the first commercially successful African American illustrator. Um, and it was published in a magazine at the time. So I just wanted to shout him out for this drawing. But most of my story today is going to focus on the Cotton Club, which you'll see in the lower left hand corner. The Cotton Club. Uh, is on 142nd Street and Lenox Avenue. And before it was known as the famous Cotton Club, it was actually called the Club Deluxe. Um, But Irish gangster Oni the Killer Madden, uh, following a a stint in prison uh, for organized crime. I bet he was a really sweet guy, and it was just a (laughs) misnomer. It's like when you call your dog killer, but it's like a tiny chihuahua. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, following a a stint in prison, he decided he was going to get into bootlegging, (laughs) um, as you do in the 1920s. So what other choice, what other choice he needed, he needed a place where he could sell what he dubbed the number one liquor in New York city. Um, and so he chose club deluxe because it was owned by an African American. Um, and so he went in and he took it. And he renamed it the Cotton Club. (laughs) And he sold his bootlegged alcohol out of there. Um, Now, the Cotton Club, I think by name, is very famous. Um, Mm -hmm. But actually, 
if you know anything about history, you can probably ascertain it's not very positive of a name. Um, so Madden actually dubbed it the Cotton Club as an ode to the cotton farming industry and its predominantly black workforce. Yep. Yay. That that's um, yeah, he's not a good guy, but... With a nickname killer? Yeah, the story is not about him. Um, okay, so many people got their start at the Cotton Club. Very household names, such as Duke Ellington, whose orchestra was the house band there from December 4th of 1927 to June 30th of 1931. Lena Horne got her start there as a chorus girl when she was only 16. Other performers include names like Etta Jones, Sammy Davis Jr., Adelaide Hall, and Cab Calloway. Um, so it was the place to be if you wanted to perform during this time period. Uh, but you could only, and this is what's quite frustrating to me now, it was a whites-only establishment. Um, so while the In performers... Harlem? Yes. Uh, while the performers were all black, mm -hmm. the the guests were whites only. Um, one time they did allow Louis Armstrong to uh, attend because he was that famous. He was allowed to attend as a guest, not as a performer, although he did perform there as well. Um, but like it was very rare that anyone who was not white was invited for dinner or a show. Oh Which my is, god. Yes. Um but the problem is not surprising. Not surprising, but like upsetting still. I like know. not mm -hmm. surprising for that time period and for uh, still upsetting. Sorry. The problems the problems don't stop there, however. Oh um, boy. The club, <laughs> the club also reproduced the racist imagery of the era, uh, often depicting black people as savages in exotic jungles or as slaves in the plantation south. So there's another picture in the email that I sent you. Um, it is labeled Cotton Club Interior. Um, and if you open it, you can see how like the dance floor was kind of in the middle. This is where the performers would perform and the guests would sit all around it. Um, it always had like trees set up on the sides to mimic like a jungle and um, in a lots of posters and advertisements, the performers were depicted as like monkeys um, to represent the black performers. Oh my God. That doesn't yeah. even make sense for like the type of performers that they had. I, I know. Like, I, what? Okay. So the, so I didn't realize that the cotton club was essentially the rainforest cafe, but like super racist. Oh, yeah. 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 In fact, the Cotton Club had the strictest segregation policy of all Harlem cabaret clubs during the time. So wild. Yeah. Um, I also sent you guys just a couple of pictures of some performers. So there's one, it says Jesse Owen and dancers. This was like a rehearsal um, of okay. some performers. Um, and so the entrance fee to get into the Cotton Club was quite expensive. Um, so the performers were well, com com con well, 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 well 
compensated, um, which is why many performers wanted to get a job at the Cotton Club, even though the treatment was terrible, but they were making pretty good money. Um, one big rule was that the black performers could not mix with the club's clientele. So after the show, they would often go next door to the basement of 646 Lenox Avenue. And that's where the performers would kind of hang out and they were known to drink. It was quoted as corn whiskey, peach brandy and smoked marijuana. Like that's what they were known to do. Brandy, whiskey and marijuana. That's how they relax after a performance. Um, so, yeah. So you, while we look back and we're like, why would anyone want to work there? It was the paycheck that made them want that job. Uh, so in this picture, this is a rehearsal picture of some of our performers. I also sent you a dinner picture. That's famously Joe DiMaggio of the New York Yankees having dinner at the Cotton Club one night. Mm-hmm. Um, in the center, like not looking at the camp, like looking at the food. Um, yep. But so it was very high end clientele um, and lots of famous celebrities would go there. It really was like a happening cabaret bar dinner show of the time. Um, let's see, where did I go? OK, um, and this model worked very, very well in Harlem, so much so that around the country, other branches started to to open up very famously, one in Chicago, uh, run by none other than Ralph Capone. Bottles. Bottles. Um, so our, our good friend Bottles opened up a speakeasy, calling it the Cotton Club, mimicking this style. And there's a picture I sent you, and I, I didn't really need to include this, but I had to because it was like a throwback to last season, and I had never seen it but it says Al Capone drilling safe when they were trying to catch Al Capone and, and match his money back to bootlegging. They raided the cotton club that his brother owned. And this is them famously trying to open one of the safes in the cotton club. And to this day, they still don't know what was found in that safe and whether or not it helped. Like no one, this is the only picture and info of this safe. So um, for everyone listening and being like, you're talking a lot about pictures, you have to go to our social media and look at these pictures because it really just adds to the story of how crazy all of this is. But the Cotton Club does branch out. They have uh, branches in Chicago, a couple in California, um, and the model is very popular. Some of the rules that were imposed on the performers Um, the women were usually very scantily clad, um, but the women were expected to be tall, tan, and terrific. That was a quote. Um, and they had to be at least five, six, light skinned. Um, none of the female performers at the Cotton Club were ever dark skinned. Uh, the the male performers could be, uh, dark skinned, but the women had to present almost white. Like if you think of Lena Horne, if you can picture her, she's very white presenting, even though Mm -hmm. she was not, but that was what they were looking for in their female performers. Um, And so here's where we get to like the actual woman of this story. Uh, One such performer of the time 
was a woman named Gertrude Sanders. Um, and Gertrude went by the stage name Baby Esther. And that's because when performing, she often took on a baby-like voice. So I sent you guys a picture of our good friend Gertrude. Um, it's just called Gertrude Saunders. Um, mm-hmm. There she is. Uh, and this is her in like a, an outfit. So does anyone want to explain her attire here? Because I love this dress. <laughs> Satin, I would guess, right? Like a satiny material. Uh, it's just pure 1920s. Yeah, like, it has there's like so the many ruffles. ruffles. Yeah. It's it go to our Instagram to see it because it's really it is it is fabulous. It's a fabulous dress. But it just like you look at this and you're like, oh, she's from the 1920s. There's no yeah, doubt. 100%. Between, 100%. Yeah, between the between the dress and those and those finger waves. Yeah. In her hair. Yeah. But so um Gertrude was a performer. Um she was world renowned as a, a a young girl around the age of 10. She actually traveled to Paris and performed in Moulin Rouge again using her baby voice singing style and the French loved her. So by the time she was um, of like a somewhat adult age or an older teenager and performing at the Cotton Club, um, she had quite a reputation. Um, many people believed she would be the next Josephine Baker. Um, oh man. Yes. She was a trained scat singer. She was a dancer and an acrobat. And she included all of these in her performances. Uh, most notably, baby Esther would dance, make funny faces, roll her eyes, and say these nonsense phrases like boo 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 and wa da da and do do do. Like, this is what she's known for is these like little nonsensical voices while she's singing in the middle of her verses. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most famous one that she's famous for is boop, boop, ba doop, uh, which she says all the time in her acts. And it's noted that she first uttered those words at the cotton club. So Natalie and Vanessa, you might be asking what the point of my story is. Cause I've just told you a lot of history and I haven't really told you why I'm bringing Gertrude up, but, um, this is where I have to enter a white male. Um, so Max Fleischer, who is a famed cartoonist uh, behind characters such as Popeye and Betty Boop. Um, he creates the character of Betty Boop in the 1930s and claims that she was purely a creature of his own imagination. But um over history, historians have done some digging and found out that that is not true. Our mm-hmm. friend Gertrude was actually the inspiration behind Betty Boop, and then she was whitewashed. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how they were able to combine um, her as a cartoon, like how they were able to find the connection. Um, and it, it's pretty clear cut in from what I can see. But basically, as historians continued to dig, they found that Max Fleischer moved and lived in New York City and moved in many of the same circles as the performers at the Cotton Club um, and the elite clientele that would visit the Cotton Club. So it was Mm -hmm. probable that he would have gone 
to the Cotton Club and been invited numerous times. And another connection that they've made is that he worked with Cab Calloway to orchestrate many of his animated shorts and films. And Cab Calloway was like the orchestra leader when Gertrude performed at the the Cotton Club. So there's like no doubt that Max would have known who she was Mm -hmm. and had seen her perform. Um, In fact, Cab Calloway has went on to collaborate and starred in three of the Betty Boop cartoons with his own voice and singing. Um, So like, it's all right there. Like, I don't know why they hit it, but it's definitely definitely based on her um and from the baby voice when she's talking to the scat singing to the like boop boop a doop uh mm-hmm. it's all Gertrude's mannerisms um and like the style of Betty Boop from like the finger waves and the short hair um Gertrude isn't really known for being that scantily clad the way that Betty Boop's cartoon character is usually in very short well, dresses but a white man made it so yeah <laughs> um I did send you guys a picture though of uh it's called the real Betty Boop um and it's kind of a side by side by what Betty Boop looks like today as a white cartoon mm-hmm a still shot of Betty Boop in a very early cartoon where she is clearly darker skinned in a yeah. mm-hmm. skirt next to a picture of Gertrude. It's like three pictures in a row. Um, and so when he first created Betty Boop um, and put her in animated shorts, she did have darker skin. Um, Interesting. And then I didn't know that. Yeah. And yet you're still gonna you're still gonna come in here and be like any similarity to actual persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Yes, I'm- we're gonna slap that writer over everything or that disclaimer. Of course, yeah. Um, but I guess to um, not have to pay Gertrude for anything. That's what I was gonna say. Is was it? It was probably because they didn't want to give her anything. That is correct. Um, He did whitewash her. She became a white woman and Betty Boop would remain a white character until she was retired. Uh, It's estimated that the Betty Boop franchise generated millions of dollars in revenue from television networks and sales of merchandise. But Gertrude, who many assume inspired the character, was never compensated for the use of her person throughout her whole life. Um, very little is known what happens to Gertrude once, like, the Cotton Club shuts down and things. She kind of doesn't become as famous as Josephine Baker, and she, many think she ended up dying quite young. They don't actually know. She kind of, like, they don't know what happened to her. Um, But there is another famous, if you search Max Fleischer versus Betty Boop, or, like, controversies around Betty Boop it's not even Gertrude's that comes up first a white actress actually famously sued him in the 1930s for stealing her likeness Hmm. and this is where the whole story gets that makes me so angry wait wait, wait. can I can I ask suing suing for her likeness for Betty Boop like for the same character so Helen Kane is the white actress and she 
she sees the character of Betty Boop and she's like, hey, he stole my likeness. I want to be compensated for being Betty Boop. And so he, she famously sues him, goes to court. And in his defense, they pull up videos of Gertrude to say that he based the character no. on Gertrude. No. What? So they, they say that Helen Kane's Betty Boop is based on Gertrude. Like she stole the character from Gertrude. So she can't be compensated because she stole the character. They admit well. they admitted. They yeah. acknowledged it. Yeah. So oh my God. Yeah. Let can we get the Saunders estate some like residuals, please? I know. It's so some royalties. So messed up. They were like, no, 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 no. Don't worry. We didn't steal your identity. We stole this other person's. Like, what? Yeah. Yeah. But oh he won. God. Max oh Fleischer wins. He doesn't pay either woman for the likeness of Betty Boop. I know. That is infuriating. Oh, I want to punch a wall. <laughs> <laughs> so we, and we, I think today assume Betty Boop has kind of always been a household name, but that's not the, the case. The character was actually retired in 1939 and kind of went out of, everyone's mind and she didn't reappear until like the late 1970s when she was rediscovered and became like an iconic historical cartoon figure so they started to like bring her back in the 1970s but by then like the entire like Harlem Roots Gertrude any any darkening of the skin elements had been removed she's been just very pale skinned and white since the 1970s. Um, so I just, I saw this story and I was like, this makes me so mad. <laughs> and I had no idea. I was like, I have to. I had no story. idea. I know. Uh, I like heard about or around it. Like I feel like recently, but I didn't know. I did not know. I did not know about this other, this other, other lawsuit on like this lawsuit in the matter, but I, and I did not know the details. Yeah. Um, I did just for fun. I sent you guys a YouTube link. Um, I'm not going to watch it now. We might post it if we can get just the clip of it. Cause it's like an eight minute cartoon, but it's the full cartoon of where the, the like black Betty boop is like the original. Um, and so I I just told you in the email, it's around the minute 430 mark. And you can actually see she's like dancing on stage with Popeye in a hula scoot, her hula skirt. And she's very clearly like darker skin tone than Popeye or the other characters on the screen. So pretty interesting. Um, I do just want to wrap up with kind of what happens with the Cotton Club after 13 years of being a happening hot place for jazz music and illegal booze and rampant racism. The cotton club closes its doors for good on February 16th of 1936 in the middle of the great depression. Um, it, it goes on. There are many renditions of the cotton club. There was another one in midtown Manhattan. And even today there is a cotton club located a little bit more South on 125th street. But I was going to say, isn't there still one? And then when you said it shut its doors, I was like, oh, I guess I was wrong. But no, I'm not yeah. crazy. 
it is it is not the same. Um, it yeah. definitely never it does not bring the caliber of performers. And from everything I've read, it really is more of a tourist trap. It serves mm-hmm. like brunch on Sundays with like jazz music and people are like, I ate at the cotton club. How sophisticated am I? There's a there was one in Chicago that I wonder if it's like again part of like that same kind of franchise because there there was one in Chicago that closed in the early aughts that was like on Michigan Avenue. So yeah, um, so I people don't really go there for you know quality music entertainment. I think it's much more of like the historical tourist trap. Mm-hmm. That is many things but um so i had two really great articles i use the people source which is what we call wikipedia um but i also used two really great articles that i wanted to shout out um glamour gangsters and racism 30 photos inside harlem's infamous cotton club that was written by aaron kelly um in march of 2019 and then my new favorite website that I found while researching this is, um, it's called, sorry, it's my dog. Can you guys hear the dog barking? Yeah, I can mm-hmm. hear it. Uh, it is what it is. Um, so it's called messynessychic.com. And um, they had this article called Tracing the Real Betty Boot Back to a Notorious Bootleggers Club in 1920s Harlem. Um, written by Natalie McCain in December of 2018. So thank you guys for those sources. I enjoyed researching. Yeah. For, for Francis Willard, I also used the people source. Uh, (laughs) But as I, as I mentioned, uh, I also used the Francis Elizabeth, I think it's literally called the Francis Elizabeth Willard. Oh no, the Francis Willard house uh, org her that her museum and archives um as a source and then uh the social welfare history project from uh vcu libraries and a couple of articles from northwestern university nice yeah all right well i i I love our guest episodes where i don't have to tell a story because i just get to sit back and learn so thank you guys for both sharing those stories um, as Laura mentioned in her story, we are going to post pictures of episodes. So please follow us on social media. We're at a tap on the wrist on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you can also email us at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com with any story ideas. Um, and Natalie, do you want to shout out your social media so people can follow you guys and check your podcast out? Yeah, you can find shared history Wherever you get podcasts, we are at SharedPod on Instagram and Twitter. Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, and we like to end. We, we aren't drinking right now. I mean, I have water, but we do usually like to end with a cheers. So we'll just say cheers. Cheers. No. Cheers. <laughs>